Hi, it's Brock. You might know me from such things as the Sprocket Podcast. Hey, I went to a little event that Nathan Jones put on down at the Bike Gallery in Selwood, their newest location here in Portland, Oregon. Bike Gallery is a fantastic place to get your bike worked on, to pick up accessories, that sort of thing. It was also, just last night as I'm recording this, a great place to hear Nathan Jones tell stories from his round-the-world bicycle race. So, uh... This is about two hours of Nathan Jones talking to us. I've edited slightly. Uh, It was a presentation given with a slideshow, so there may be references to things you can't see. We'll see if we can get some of those pictures for you so you can see them anyways. But uh, most importantly, just want to make sure you have access to the amazing stories that Nathan tells about working on going around the world by human power. No cheating, you know, aside from planes and boats and that sort of thing, but, uh, you know. Anyways, uh, good stuff, and I think you'll enjoy it. Again, here is uh, it's a very long form presentation, but uh, it's worth it. You got to hear Nathan Jones' stories. All right, let's get this thing fired up, ladies and gentlemen. So let's talk about the director of the Trans Am bike race, the director of the Steens Mazama One Thousand, the founder of cult bicycle brand Ride Your Bike. Employee at Bike Gallery, a great entertainer, a wonderful humanitarian, and my friend for the past six months, Nathan Jones. All right, so uh, this isn't going to be too formal, folks, um, because I'm not a formal sort of person. But um, uh, let me just start off with a little bit of history on how all this started. I grew up mountain bike racing in Missouri back in the 90s, and that was fun stuff. Uh, I got disillusioned with racing bikes for a little while and became an adult. And then uh, somewhere around 2008, um, I found out about this race called the Great Divide Mountain Bike Race, which runs from Canada to Mexico. If you've ever heard of the Tour Divide, uh, you might have heard the Continental Divide Trail. Um, anyways, it's just big gravel bike route. Um, race goes once a year every June. Uh, I started doing that in 2010. Race down to Mexico. Um, it was 2,500 miles of racing. Um, got me started the whole bike packing thing. You know, just self-supported. You do everything yourself. Uh, there's no cars helping you out with any of it. Uh, you do all your own maintenance. Can like go to a bike shop, and fix your bike up, but for the most part, it, most part of it, it's a totally self-supported sport, and you can just only use commercially available services. Um, so that's that's the sport I got kind of involved in. It's really underground. Uh, I mean, not really, but more or less. The world of cycling is pretty small, and then this underground sort of racing is even smaller. It's just a little cult group of us who like to ride our bikes all day and all night because. It's just fun. So, um, second year I went back to race the divide again, and this was a little longer route that started up in Canada. Uh, still basically the same route, um, but I got about halfway through with it and just really didn't have it in me. I ended up quitting it that year. Um, Gravel road racing is not the easiest thing in the world when you're doing 125 mile days, 150 mile days. It kind of takes its toll on you. Um, but 
So the, the divide roots, there's this organization called the Adventure Cycling Association. And uh, they're based up out of Montana. Sell all these maps for all these different routes across the country. They've got a Continental Divide route, they've got Pacific Coast route, Sierra Nevada, they've got routes across the East Coast, they've got a Northern Tier route, a Southern Tier route, and they've got one that's called the Trans America Trail. Um, so I found out about the Trans America Trail through the Divide Racing, and um, the Trans America Trail is a 4,400 mile touring route from Oregon to Virginia. Um, so it's the oldest touring route across the U.S. Um, it was founded in 1976 um, by the, the Greg and June Seipel. They went on to for, form the Adventure Cycling Association. Um, and basically, so after I'd raced the divide and I found out about this touring route that's 40 years old, it, it's, it's a pavement route, whereas the divide's gravel. So I was like, well, why don't we race this pavement route? So and another cool catch to that is that um, it starts here in Oregon, goes to Virginia, and also goes through my home state in Missouri uh, about halfway across the route. So it was just like my dream to race from Oregon to, uh, to Missouri and then on to Virginia. So that's kind of how I came up with the idea for this bike race. Uh, ended up calling it the Trans Am Bike Race. And so fast forward to 2014 launched the bike race and there were 45 of us that started it uh, they made a cool documentary about it called Inspired Ride um, worth checking out it's on Netflix if you ever are bored and you enjoy this sort of stuff you should totally see it if you haven't already I figure half of y'all have already seen it so enough about that um, but yeah so the first Trans Am race and I just want to clarify some of this on, the, on these races first before I go into the whole around the world story because there's a little bit of context to just understand these silly races kind of help you better understand the whole why I go around the world in the manner that I went. Um, so yeah, first year 2014, we have the Trans Am bike race. There's 45 of us. Um, some really cool people showed up to do it. Um, a couple of them are Mike Hall and Juliana Burring. Um, so they had also ridden around the world and set really blazingly fast times on it. Juliana took the woman's record at like 140 days, and then Mike got an unofficial men's record of like 106 days, and this is back in 2012. Um, it was actually the first, somebody organized a global bike race back in 2012. Um, only 12 people signed up because uh, it was an 18,000 mile bike race and it takes a lot of time to commit to that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, they, they came and they did my race and I raced with them and they both beat me and I finished way behind them. But um, they served as just massive inspirations for me. Like after I fi finished this bike race across the U.S., um, kind of left a big lingering in me, like, what do I do now? I raced 4,400 miles across the USA, and then I knew these two people who had raced around the world, and it just only made sense. It was the only sane thing to do was just ride my bike even further, because I was generally bored, and I don't know, it's just what I do. So, um, I spent three years preparing to do it, two and a half years. To prepare for it took a lot of different 
uh, different approaches. Um, I knew the biggest challenge would just be raising the money to do it. Um, I can ride a bike all day, but if you can't pay to keep eating and getting hotels or flying planes or whatever, then it's pretty much a lost cause. So um, I, for my first big training voyage was last August of last year. Um, there's a race across Europe called the Transcontinental Race. Um, it's a lot like the Trans Am or the Divide. It's another self-supported race. I flew over Europe. Um, that race is run by Mike Hall, or what was run by Mike Hall. More into that in a little bit. Um, so, went over to Europe. I raced across Europe for the first time. Went through like 12 countries over there. It's the same sort of deal. It's just me and my bike. Um, riding 150 miles a day and um, riding through countries, languages I didn't even know. I mean, I, I didn't know any of the languages for any of the countries I went to, um, which was kind of embarrassing. You know, you're just this American who just goes wandering through other countries and just like, I don't know what I'm doing. Just talk English and hope everybody helps me out. And for the most part, that's that's how people are. They, they didn't care. They're all friendly. But... Um, yeah, I raced across Europe as just kind of a training to get used to. It was my first time off of North America. It was just kind of to get used to getting visas and getting my passports checked and going through all these border controls and sometimes illicitly sneaking around borders. And um, So, yeah, that was the first step. Then I came back to the U.S. I raced Route 66 from Chicago to San Monica, California. Um, it was another self-support race we all launched just last October. Um, that took me through Illinois, Missouri, Oklahoma, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California. So before I even run around the world, I've raced across the U.S. three and a half times and across Europe once. And that was just, that was my training. I was like, all right, I think I, I, think I know what I need to know to do this. Um, but going around the world was still just this huge sort of uncertain thing. Like I knew, I knew I had it in me, but I just didn't know if fate would let me do it. Like you can have all your ducks in a row in this sort of thing and fate will just come through and smack you in the face and tell you, no, you're not allowed to do this. Just like things happen and the unforeseen happens and... I'm just stoked I made it around alive and I'm even here to tell this story. Like it was, it was really insane. So I guess let's get on a little bit with it. So if anybody has any questions, y'all seem pretty laid back. Just raise your hand, I'll point to you. Um, go ahead. Was your training in the summer months? No, it's all year round. Yeah, it's just, okay. yeah. So you were going to the Midwest at what time of year? This last trip? Um, the Route 66 race was in October. Yeah, right. So, but then you know, once once the season ended, just keep riding. You know, but um, uh, so a little bit of going around the world. Um, so there's this race in 2012. Um, 12 people did it. There's there are some rules. There's not a whole lot of rules. Uh, the main rule is, you know, you do it yourself. You can't hop in a car. Um, you can't really get somebody to... Uh, that's pretty much it for going around the world. 
Um, the the self-supported races, you know, like, it's really stoic. Like, you can't get any help from anybody. Uh, going around the world kind of on your own, like, it's kind of a gray area. If somebody brings you some snacks, you take the snacks. You don't, like, say, oh, I'm too good for your snacks. I'm doing this self-supported. Like, um, the sport's filled with all these sort of gray areas and nuances. It's, it's a real sport. It's a fake sport. Um, sometimes I like to poke fun of it. Uh, do you think culturally a woman could do the round the world? Well, Juliana Bork-Murray had a, a record for it 140 days. So, um, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> totally. Sarah Hammond, uh, Australia, is looking to do it next. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's the cool thing about the endurance sports. Like, men and women, they pretty much they've got an equal playing field. I don't know about the opportunities to get to the playing field being equal, but, like, once you're there, it's it's a bike ride and anybody can do it. There's there's no real classes in this sport other than any sort of preconceived classes. So um, anyways, back to this round the world thing. So there's not a lot of rules. You have to pass two opposite points of the globe. You can choose those two opposite points. Um, I chose somewhere in Spain and somewhere in New Zealand. There's not a lot of opposite points in the globe that have land on the upper opposite side of it. So there's that's probably the main factor in trying to determine how am I going to ride around the world when you have this sort of constraint of i got to hit the opposite. So, um, is this ride a loop? Is it a loop? Well, of course it's a loop. It's around the world, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid questions are appreciated. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, so... That's about it. I had to ride 18,000 miles... And I had to go over two opposites, and you fly around the world, you don't hop on a boat, you don't keep pedaling while you're on the boat, you don't keep pedaling on when you're on the plane. It's nothing like that. Um, the flights are allowed. There's not much other rules than that. You don't have to go in a straight line or anything. It's just kind of like, pick, pick your route and off you go. So I planned the route best I could based off of my knowledge. I knew Europe pretty well after going across it before. Um, India, we'll get into more on that in a bit. Australia, there was actually a race being organized across Australia, which actually kind of served as like the keystone of my ride around the world. Everything kind of focused on this race across Australia called the Indian Pacific Wheel Race. Um, so... Let's maybe back up finally and get started on the actual story of going around the world. Um, so Mike Hall, he went around the world 106 days. Um, he runs this race across Europe, the Transcontinental, the one that I did. He won the race that I launched, the Trans Am bike race. He's a record holder on the Tour Divide. Um, he was a really great guy. Um, he gave me this pump, which is I'm holding right here. This is the same pump that he took around the world on his first lap, um, is the lap he did. Um, he was like, go and give it another lap, man. So, like, All right, well, that's pretty good sort of, that's, that's the why, you know? Like, that's why I go race around the world. Like, I knew this guy who had already done it, and he was a huge inspiration, and it's just like, that's what I want to do. So I took his pump, and I started going around the world. So... How did I go around the world? Um, I started and ended in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, so 
So to actually begin the whole race, I had to fly to Nova Scotia. So I flew to Boston, flew to Nova Scotia. Um, the next evening, as my flight left out of Nova Scotia, that's when I officially began racing, was by a plane flight. It's a really weird feeling, because most times I've started a bike race, I've been riding a bike, not flying on an airplane. Um, so, yeah, flew out of Nova Scotia, that went to Toronto, because there's nothing straight out of Nova Scotia to Europe. Uh, Toronto flew me to Lisbon, Portugal, and that's where I got to bust the bike out of the box, and that's what you see right there, is Lisbon, Portugal. That's like the first photo I took after I started. I sent that photo to Mike, and I was like, all right, man, that pump's there. It's going to go another lap. So you can see it's just a massive crap that I pulled out of the bike box. Like it was a really, it was a bunch of nerves in me when I when I when I started this. Um, it was truly amazing to be able to just start this endless sort of cycling journey. Like I've ridden for a month before, but now I've never ridden for four and a half months before. Like that's just I didn't know what what my brain was in for. I was just. That's part of the joy of this, is you just charge right into the unknown, and whatever happens, happens, and you just learn to take it in stride and keep on moving. So, um, so I'll just kind of tell you the story about keeping on moving. Um, I landed in Portugal, um, and I started riding out of Portugal, and I found a shotgun shell. Um, so, you're, you know, they don't have a lot of guns there, and... Um, it was weird to see a shotgun shell. I'd ridden across Europe once before, hadn't seen any gun stuff anywhere, and then first thing riding across Portugal, I find a shotgun shell. And I don't know, I just point that out because this is American. We're all about guns here. Europe is not, period. So, yeah, maybe Portugal a little bit more, maybe not. Um, <laughs> some of this will seem, seem have a lot of a lot of uh, meaning to it and some of it will be completely pointless so uh, this is the more pointless of it uh, it's just a nice day in Portugal um, as soon as I got there it was kind of rainy uh, it was early fe so February 11th is when I started going around it was still just barely into winter in Europe um, that was kind of nerve wracking like going to Europe and planning racing across it in early or late winter like I was I got really lucky. Um, the weather was not too bad. Um, it took me like a day and a half to hit Spain. Um, Spain is a very uh, laid-back country. It's a lot like France um, in terms of just the way the road traffic. Like they give you lots of space. Um, it's not like a cycling utopia or anything, but uh, compared to the states, Spain's a great place. Great place to go cycle to. If you ever want to go there, go for it. Um, it's, it's nothing fancy. It's just some photos of me and my bike. You'll, you'll see lots of photos of stupid sodas or something in here. Like, I drink lots of sodas when I bike race. I don't have time to stash all these powders or stuff and find the powders while I can't mail it to you. Like, you got to get your electrolytes somehow. And the cool thing about traveling through all these countries, you get to buy different types of soda, like green soda here and yellow soda there. <laughs> some of you may like soda, some not. Um, either way, it's, it's a perfectly good electrolyte source, in case you're wondering. Um, it's, it's everywhere. You can find it everywhere. It keeps you from drinking the tap water and getting some sort of weird 
stomach infection or something, but uh, that's a couple days in. Third evening, I hit Alejos. Uh, it's just a really crappy picture of it. Um, that was my first antipode, which is the global opposite. So three days in, I hit my first opposite side of the globe. I'm just like, yes, I'm doing this. Only another 17,500 miles to go. Um, it was a good feeling, but also kind of like, ha I'm halfway around, uh, whatever. Um, Europe's cool because they don't have um, trucks with like a nose to them. They're all flat-facing trucks. Um, Europe is just like the capital of trucks that can do anything. In, anywhere in Europe, they have so many, they have a truck for every application in Europe, like whether it's cleaning a sewer or something, like they just have the most beautiful diversity of big rigs. Um, and they're pretty good drivers for the most part. None of, none of them are really antagonistic, like, um, but this is just at the north of the Pyrenees, just exiting Spain into France. Um, that was pretty much my day. It was just a row of trucks. Like, they were just passing me all day long. Um, that's kind of the story of this bike ride. I toured the main highways around the world. It was not an off-the-beaten-path sort of ordeal. Like, this was Route 66 around the planet. Like, straight up. So, I don't, seem, I don't mind riding with traffic too much. It gets a little nerve-wracking sometimes. But, um, like I said, if you got questions, just raise your hand. Um, just cool shots. That's just rural Spain. Um, coffee, of course. Um, Europe's got great coffee. I love coffee. Um, I could not manage to order a double espresso in Spain, no matter how hard I tried. This is like my sixth or seventh time trying to order a double espresso. I tried espresso doble, doble espresso. Neither seem to work. They always got. <laughs> if you ever wonder why I really do this, it's because the coffee stops. Because I love coffee. Um, I think this is getting in towards France. You can see I still have some orange sodas or something. Uh, this is the Basque country of Spain. So yeah, we're still in Spain here. This is uh, it's a loose translation is up feminists fight. Um, it's just good to see people encouraging feminists to get up and fight. Um, this is proper proper French sunrise. Um, it was pretty cool. Another coffee stop. I go into the coffee shop, drinking my coffee, set up my bike for the photo, and the espresso guy comes out and he points at me taking the photo, and he's just... Yeah, it's a pretty good shot. Whatever. It was a beautiful, beautiful morning. Um... I mean, it's just, this is, this, the shots are going to get a little repetitive in this. Um, you'll notice the sodas change and the landscape changes. The bike stays the same. Um, here I have a Coca-Cola and some sort of Fanta. Um, but yeah, keep on riding. Try not to get too excited about Europe for too long. Uh, so this is, I made it into Italy. I went through uh, Milan, San Remo, and Nice and whatever that big one is over there, um, over by Monaco. What's up? Did I carry a lot? Did I carry a lot? Um, a lot. Oh, a lot. No. No, I did not. Um, very neurotic about washing my bike after I had mine stolen just a year ago, sleeping next to it. Um, ever since then, I just kind of 
I'll go into a grocery store and then I'll go grab one thing and then I'll come back and check on the bike and then I'll go grab another thing, come back, check on the bike, or just bring it in, you know, whatever. No locks for me. It's too much weight and too much time. I mean, it's, it's, it's racing. Like, I'm pretty much in it all the time. Like, with all your vast experience, I'm sure you had all your equipment pretty well dialed. Was there anything you were missing? Uh, not really. No. <laughs> Maria. Tires. Tires. Uh, Did you wear them out? Where'd you get more? Tires, I, um, I've spent a lot of time testing my tires. Probably about six years ago, I got really turned on to a certain set of tires and then found out they made a tubeless version of them just recently. And then so, uh, first set of tires got me all the way across Europe without any flats. They got me all the way across India without any flats. I mailed a new tire to Australia, rear tire, and that's where I swapped that out. And then those tires got me all the way back to Portland, and then I'll tell the rest of the tire stories later. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm pretty proud of myself. I got across Europe and India without any flats. Like, from India, no flats. Like, um, So this is some sodas on my bike, and somewhere in Italy, Really, it might still even be. This is the the Po Valley. So the northern part of Italy is a giant flat valley uh, filled with tons of traffic, and uh, it's not particularly scenic. But I chose it because it's flat and it's fast way across Italy. Um, more mundane aspects of this sort of thing. Uh, you get to see cool things like citadels and stuff. The iced tea really kind of the brown matches with the, the castles and. Um, so finally, once I escaped Italy, I went to Slovenia, which is like budget Switzerland. If you ever plan a trip to plan a trip to Europe, go to Slovenia. It's super rad. Um, I rode through. Unfortunately, it's like 17 miles of Slovenia I rode through before I ran into Croatia. Like the next hour, but um, Croatia is an amazing, amazing country. Um, hear about it all the time. From Game of Thrones, if any of you are Game of Thrones fans, um, I'm not, but I end up watching it anyways. Um, <laughs> but uh, Croatia's got this long, long coastline. After the breakup of Yugoslavia, Croatia got like a 400-mile coastline. Like they got all the coastline of Eastern Europe, and all the other countries kind of got burned. Um, it's pretty cheap there. It's starting to get a little touristy, but nowhere near as much as like Italy or something. So, cool shots of the coastline here. I mean, it's just, they've got like a thousand islands that run off the coast of Croatia, so you can just ride the coast and it's just, there's an island, there's an island. Is that a thousand island Yes, that is a thousand island No idea. Um, buy it with the peanut gallery. Uh, it's just an amazing place. I can't say enough about Croatia. I've got a lot of photos in here just to kind of burn it into your head that it's like, you should go there like before you die. It's, it's worth the trip. Nice sunsets. It's, it's, it's just beautiful. Uh, this is a little bit more towards the southern part. Um, yeah, I can st stop, stop for a second tell some cool stories about Croatia. So... Uh, Croatia has what's called the Bora, which is um, the 
Greek god of wind, uh, or that's Boreas. Anyways, the Bora is a weather phenomenon there um, that basically works out to like 100 mile, 200 mile an hour winds coming from like Ukraine area, and they just blow from the northeast straight out towards uh, Italy over Croatia and stuff. Um, so just as I get into Croatia, this Bora sets in. And, you know, nothing phases me. I just keep riding, whatever. Um, uh, I get to the edge of this town, start climbing up it, and then it just all hell breaks loose. Like, uh, it's a 100-mile-an-hour wind. Like, the rain's coming down sideways. And uh, Europe's really cool about bus stops. That's, that's how I've learned to judge a country. I've, I, I base them off of their bus stops. Like, if you have good bus stops, you're a good country. If you have no bus stops, then... You suck, you know. Like, I mean, really, right? Like that's how you do public infrastructure, right? Build some bus stops. So, uh, Croatia's got a lot of great bus stops. Um, I hold up in one. It's raining sideways. I was too like tired and out of it. Like my taillights were still blinking, and uh, some neighbor goes and sees my taillights blinking. And he comes up to me and. Real good English. He's like, "Hey, man, uh, we're just down the way. If you want to stay with us," I'm like, "No, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this self-supported. This, it's just me right now. I, I, I can't take any help." And he's like, "All right, I'll come check on you in a, an hour." And it's just like, as soon as he walks away, I'm like, "Man, I'm an idiot. Like, I should have just gone. Like, why do I have to be Captain Hardcore all the time?" So. I just sat there shivering for like an hour, and then finally he comes back. He's like, hey, man. I'm like, how far is it? He's like, 30 meters. I'm like, let's go. So, <laughs> so we go to this guy's house, and the, the bad thing about I'm actually racing. I mean, it's you get time to take all these photos and stuff, but more when I take these photos, it's to keep myself sane. You get so sick of riding. You're just like, oh, it's beautiful. I got to enjoy this for something so, but when you stop with somebody and they take you into your house, you're, you're kind of obligated to tell them a story or something. Like, at least film in on what the heck you're doing. So, we stayed up till midnight, shooting the shit, drinking beers, figuring out his dad's a shipbuilder there and builds all sorts of boats. And, um, I asked them, I'm like, do you guys have a dryer? They're like, oh yeah, we have a dryer. Most Europeans don't have clothes dryers, so they don't do that over there. They just line dry everything. I don't know how they do it in the winter when all this stuff is freezing, but they, they do it anyway. Um, it's like, oh, yeah, I got, I get, we got a dryer, and then he brings me, like, a hair dryer. <laughs> so my clothes, my clothes are soaked, and I slowly dried them out over that night with a hair dryer. Um, anyway, so that was, that was my cool story of hospitality for Croatia. That was my first, like, oh, shit moment where it was just, like, Things had gotten kind of crazy. It wasn't out of hand, but it was just some nice hospitality from some guys. So anyway, that's Croatia. Uh, amazing little city. Um, Speaking of lights, what did you do for visibility? Did you run all three at the same time? Did you have I actually had a fourth one on there, yeah. like um, You put some lithium batteries in there. Sometimes I'd run all four, sometimes just the two. It just depends on how sketchy it felt at the time. Four taillights in the back, one or two headlights in the front, just depending. Let's see. So, getting through Croatia, just, I mean, you couldn't help but just drop the bike somewhere and take a photo, and it's like, wow, lots of photos. Ridiculously huge tree. 
This is Dubrovnik. This is the walled city in Game of Thrones, if anybody can watch that. Um, big tour city in, in uh, Croatia. Um, worth going to if you ever get there. This is a view from the top of it. Um, funny story. All the services were down, like, here, and I was way on top of the hill, and I only had, like, that much of my soda left, so... I'm actually sitting here going, man, I don't want to ride down that hill to get more soda, but so I just kept, because you, you plan a route, and then it's just like, you try and look up services on it, and then reality happens, and well, that store closed two hours ago, this sport, it's filled with all sorts of nice surprises, so, um, so this is making it to Albania, this is how terrible Albania was, um, Albania is a very interesting company, company, country. Um, it slipped out of dictatorship like last in all the countries that I went to. So the people there are struggling to make make things come into into civilization again. I mean, it's they've made a lot of leaps and bounds. Like there's LTE all over the whole country. Like you can upload videos everywhere you go, but there's also a lot of garbage. Um, there's a lot of really crazy driving. Um, the driving in Albania was probably the craziest I saw anywhere in the world. Um, they weren't they weren't very uh, angry drivers though. There wasn't like any animosity to them. Like they didn't want me dead. They just wanted me out of the way. Um, if you have ever biked around the U.S., you know what I mean. Um, it can be a little rough. So first day in. In Albania, that was literally the only photo I took because it was just, it was kind of disheartening. It was like, all right, this place is crazy. Here's a photo of a Coke in my hand. Um, day two in Albania, I started to climb up into the mountains and started to see the inner beauty of the country. Made it a little further off the coast and um, really got, um, as Albania transitions into Greece, uh, the mountains start, the valleys start, the rivers start. And it's just beautiful. It's it's. I can't even get on with it. Like, this is this is right near the border of Albania and Greece. Um, you can see this little rainbow just like covering the city as I'm leaving. Um, it was a pretty magical little moment for me personally. Um, this was cool to see refugees welcome. No Nazis. Uh, just always good to see tags of people that are the right mindset. You know, uh, you can say what you want about graffiti, but at least the at least the heart is there. Um, so this is getting further in the center of Greece. Uh, so the reason I had chosen Greece as uh, the end of my European trip. Um, so the transcontinental race it went across the one I did the year before. It went from uh, Belgium to Turkey. Um, Turkey's gone through a fair bit of political strife recently, and um, they've actually moved the end of the, the transcontinental race in Turkey. They've moved it to Greece. Um, so for this year's race, the transcontinental race across Europe, I know this might be a little confusing, all these silly races I keep bringing up. Um, but this year's race across Europe, and well, it ended in, in Meteora, uh, this little place here, this little monastery thing. Um, it's a giant sandstone cliffs 
Bash is giant sandstone cliffs with like seven monasteries on top of it from the 14th century. Um, all of these, there's like a monastery there, there's like one over there. Um, there's more cliffs over here with more monasteries on top that you have to take like um, this little gondola cart thingies to get across to them. Like they built them in the 14th century. And um, I love like old churches. It's just the architecture is amazing. Like you can't not enjoy them if you like any sort of architecture. So uh, Meteoric Greece, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's just absolutely amazing. It's They don't allow any like filming there, so they, they haven't spoiled it a lot with movies and stuff. Like it's just kind of this hidden little um, religious place that Cool, cool part of Greece to go to. Um, yes, yes. There's everybody still working in them and all day long working, praying, whatever, whatever you do in a monastery. You know. Like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, this is Athens. Um, marathon bikes. It seemed like an appropriate place to end, end a marathon ride, if you will. Um, Ended up doing 20 days to get across Europe. It ended up being about 2,700 miles, I think. Um, I had to cut out about 1,000 miles of my trip across Europe. I, I left to go around the world rather under-trained. Um, I was supposed to be, do a big training ride before I left. Uh, my grandfather passed away, so I had to go to his funeral, and that's what I did instead of a training ride to go around the world. Um, so I, I left basically cold. Um, so I had to cut out like 800 miles out of Europe. I was going to do a big loop through France, and that just didn't happen. So um, getting to Athens was a really cool feeling. Um, I didn't necessarily bike straight into Athens. The cool thing about Athens is the airport's out on the side of it, so I managed to just kind of sneak around all of the sprawl and then just escape the continent. Um, it's funny, just as I was biking into Athens, I see that they made it so you had, so American citizens are going to have to get passports to get, or not passports, visas to go to every single European country. Just like, I, I don't know, I just kind of felt like going around the world was just kind of this sort of um, skin in my teeth sort of thing. Like I left 20 days after Trump was inaugurated, so it was kind of like I just put on the blinders to what was happening in America. And, sometimes had the feeling of just like uh, like the like the floor is falling out behind me as I'm going along <laughs> you know <laughs> like uh, so anyway that's that's Europe done um, so so yeah I flew to India um, it took me about a day and a half to get the bike boxed up and get over there um this is the photo I took where I'm like, hey, I think nothing looks bent. You know, after you fly with your bike, you're kind of paranoid about everything being damaged. So this is this is the post-inspection sort of like, well, I don't think it's broken yet, but we still haven't gotten it together. But hey, I'm in India, so let's see. Um, within 30 minutes of me taking this photo, I was surrounded by 50 people, and they were just staring at me, watching at what I was doing. Um, they're very curious over there. And rightly so, you know, look at that mess I've got in the airport there. Um, so this is Mumbai International at 3 o'clock in the morning. I got really lucky and hit there in the dead of the night. And um, uh, 
I was I was intimidated. I had a couple friends in India. I'm like, what do you think about me riding out to Mumbai at four in the morning? And she's like, yeah, do it. Get out before the traffic starts. I'm like, okay, I'll ride out to Mumbai at four in the morning. It's just, I mean, it's just insanity right from the start. Like, I mean, well, it wasn't right from the start. This is kind of cool shot. Like, this is nobody at Mumbai International Airport at three thirty in the morning. Like, this is one of the most crazy airports in the world. There's just nobody there. Okay, here we go. I'm gonna do this. Bike's all good to go. I just kind of slammed together the bike because my anxiety of having 40 people watch me assemble my bike was just too much. It was like, okay, just pack space. Like my bike squeaked all the way across India because of how hastily I put it together. Um, uh, anyway, uh, so this is just outside Mumbai as the sun rises. You cannot really see it all. There's like the skyline back here. Some big mountains, whatever. I didn't need, so I couldn't get any money out. I couldn't buy any sodas. I was really depressed. Um, I called the bank beforehand, made sure all my finances were dialed for all this traveling, and sure enough, like I went through five ATMs in Mumbai, and I could not get out any money. Uh, starting to have you know panic attacks. Like, am I really in India and I can't get money out? Like. I think it was just bank trouble. Yeah. <laughs> just other side of the world bank system <laughs> confusion. Like, um, this, this is the first place I stopped to spend money, McDonald's. Um, so I'm like, can you, can you take my card? And sure enough, they took my card. Um, I was super stoked to find McDonald's. They have vegan burgers in McDonald's. Unfortunately, it's breakfast time there, so I had to get hash browns. But... They mark the hash browns vegetarian. I'm vegan, vegetarian, mostly vegan, except when all hell breaks loose and I can't find anything to eat, or I think I can't find anything to eat. Um, it's super cool to veg label. Everything on in, everything in India, if it's vegetarian, it's got that little green square on it. So it's pretty cool. Um, this is the first evening. I finally, I finally. Um, it was like a hundred miles in. I finally find an ATM that was working. I tried like six in this town, and uh, so. How much did you eat at that It was nine hash browns and two coffees. <laughs> <laughs> potatoes are my my fuel. Uh, fried potatoes. So, um, so rode about a hundred miles. I found an ATM that worked. Uh, just as I find an ATM that worked, I had to. Uh, Two dot stalkers. Oh, what's up here? Oh, he's finished. I'm curious about the bike boxes. Do you do arrange it with the bike shop ahead of time? Oh, a little bit yes and no. Like the bike shop in Athens, I called them. Um, I'll talk some more on that as I go. Um, but yeah, just as I found some money, like while I'm waiting, like fumbling, I, I found I found some money. Like I found an ATM that worked, and I'm like, it works. I try it again, I'm like, it still works. I try it again, I'm like, okay, I think that's how much money I need to get across India. Like, it got me four-fifths of the way across India, all the money I got out there. But um, stuff's really cheap there, uh, so that's kind of nice. But anyway, so I get out of this ATM, and there's these two dot stalkers that have found me, and 
it's like day one in India, and I'm like, people have just found me, you know, like they, some random Noring group had gotten plugged in because of some other guy I knew on Facebook, and he plugged in some more random Noring people, and then they went and found me, and um, super cool guys that done the Race Across America before, which is a, um, a supported version of racing across the country, unlike the Trans Am, which is anyway. Um, I told him, I'm just like, I need to eat. I hadn't eaten anything. I just got the money out. I, well, I ate the hash browns earlier, but this is this is my evening time. I hadn't eaten anything, so um, so they're like, I'm like, I need I need something veg. Take me some more veg. Surely somewhere across the street, it's vegetarian. And it took a good half hour for them to serve us dal and rice for some reason, but we had a great conversation in the meantime. I learned that they these two guys. They, they want to ride around the world themselves um, in this much the same manner that I was doing. So it was, it was kind of one of those sort of meant-to-be feeling sort of moments where you just meet the right people that you just feel like... It feels like destiny sometimes, these events. Like, you go to these just far-flung corners and then you just run into someone where it, it seems so like it was supposed to happen. It's like magic. It's... It's, it sounds crazy when you try to explain it to, lay, lay, to the layperson, but when you go experience it, it's, it makes perfect sense. Um, anyway, cool guys. One of them gave me a massage just in the at the side of the restaurant. He's like, "Lay down. I'm going to massage your legs." I'm like, "Sure, man. Thanks." <laughs> I don't normally get random massages on the side of the road in India, but today I do. <laughs> so yeah, it's just nice sunset photo. This is probably sunset the next night. Um, lots of litter in India. Uh, as I rode out of Mumbai, uh, it's just fires burning everywhere. Just piles of garbage just burning. Like the whole, the whole. Uh, it, after going around the world, it kind of felt like it was all on fire. But India was like my first sort of awakening to the like, ah, here's what it's like to be a, in a place that's on fire all the time. Y'all can probably relate to this recently. Worse than Kentucky? Say what? Worse than Kentucky? Uh, yeah, worse than Kentucky. But, um, lots of, lots of fires in India, lots of trash on fire. I was amazed by the amounts of trash. Um, they don't have a good system for it there. Um, you can't help but not see it, and wonder about it, you know, like this is what capitalism is doing to the rest of the world, you know, Albania is the same way, like Albania was kind of warm up to India, just garbage everywhere and it's, it's sad and it's also it's more confusing and just like how do we deal with this problem, anyways one of the observations I learned from going around the world is trash is a big problem it's not a new observation, but it was very much ingrained into me afterwards. You can see the sunset looks very familiar to some sunsets we've seen just a month ago, right? The smoke and the haze, like, it, it's, it's just hazy there all the time. Um, I went across what was basically India's Route 66. It's their oldest sort of highway from Mumbai to Kolkata. Um, I picked it because it was just an easy way to get across India. It was one road I had to navigate. I didn't have to think hard about anything. It was just kind of like get on the road and ride towards the sun every morning and then ride away from it after noon hits. Um, I didn't want to risk a lot in India. I budgeted a lot of extra time. I didn't do a lot of miles. I was only doing 110 miles a day. Um, 
Where were you staying in India? So in India, I stayed in hotels every single night, uh, except for one. Um, India is so jam-packed with people that you cannot camp outside. Um, somebody will come up and mess with you and just ask, like, what are you doing? Like, where are you going? Why are you here? Like, it was obvious that I was out of place there, and everybody wanted to know. And if you could find somewhere where there weren't people, there were farm animals. So there was no camping there. Like, you could try. And there's also no riding at night there. Like, it's customarily very weird to ride after sunset there. They view it as a time you're supposed to be with your family and eating dinner and sharing stores and stuff. So... Cycling after dark is not necessarily frowned upon, but it's just a weird thing to do. So, sun went down. I tried to find a hotel. Um, I got really lucky. Eight out of the nine days I was there, I found a hotel. Um, the one night that I did not was an absolute nightmare. Uh, I found a bus stop, so score one for India's infrastructure. Um, I stayed in that bus stop, but uh, India's mining is insane. So, India's... Uh, infrastructure is exploding like they are really ramping things up there they're building roads like crazy they're building telephone networks and whatever they got to do to get broadband spread out like it's just growing like crazy there there's endless mining um, of iron work which most of they end up shipping to china but um lots of trucks going into the mountains pulling out all the iron ore so yeah, the night that I'm camping out, um, I found out that after dark is when they move all the iron trucks around because it's just too damn hot during the day. Um, so I slept right next to the road in this bus stop. Well, for six hours, an endless convoy of iron trucks drove by me. Like, I, it's, I can't explain it. It was, it was literally an endless convoy of iron trucks for six hours overnight, and then I just started riding again because I couldn't take it anymore. Um... This is just some cool thing I found, nothing special. Um, for some reason, I switched to drinking water here. It was really hot. Like, that's only, only when I'll drink water is when it's above, like, 110. Um, let's see, it's real hazy. Oh, uh, this one is great. So this is a National Highway Authority of India exempted dignitaries. And you see they've got maybe like 28 exempted dignitaries there. This is a great example of uh, the remnants of British colonialism and the bureaucracy that the British love and instilled onto Indian culture. Um, whatever. <laughs> this, is, this is so British. Inconvenience regretted. Like, like it's just straight out of the UK. <laughs> If you go to the UK, they're like, we regret the inconvenience on like every public transit thing because it's always under construction. So, this is a cute little donkey I found in Nagpur. Uh, I love donkeys. Um, it's my nickname for my girlfriend back there, Donkey. So, um, tiny snacky world. Um, so, this goes into what I ate in India. Um, India is pretty easy to stay vegetarian. Uh, mostly vegan. Um, I never asked, you know, like, hey, is there butter in this? I just kind of ordered it and tried to get it vegetarian. Um, when I finally found a place that had Chinese food, I just cleaned them out. I had this hot and sour soup that I literally ordered ten bowls of. Um, some spring rolls. I was just delighted to get something besides Indian food after seven days. Like, I like Indian food a fair amount, but 
my stomach didn't like it. And, um, it's, it's tough to find what you want to eat, when you want to eat it, while you're riding this freaking car all the time. Um, this is pretty funny because it's a downhill sign. It's like, that's the bottom of the hill there. It's just like a overpass that they built over the city. Um, first 800 miles I rode across India were pretty much just like this. It was just desert. Um, those were the only hills with these things. Um, there's lots of prettier ways to go across India than I chose to. Like the south is apparently the beautiful jungles and stuff. And I chose the desert, not because it was the desert, but because it had the one road that went straight across. Um, whatever. More beautiful sunset, fiery, whatever, smoky, whatever. Um, this is something worth checking out. So, um, I refer to the first 800 miles of India as like the Mumbai Greater Telecom area. So, as you exit Mumbai, it's just these endless advertisements for 3G and 4G cellular phone networks. Um, and you can see this is actually a Vodafone advertisement, just on the side of somebody's house. Um, you can just you can just get money from the cell phone companies there and put a giant advertisement on the side of your house. And I thought that was the craziest thing ever because everybody's house in India has a cell phone advertisement on the side. <laughs> so. That's just not something we really do here. Uh, it makes perfect sense, right? Easy way to get a few bucks. Maybe a cheap cell phone. I don't know. Um, nice close-up of the shot. So uh, This is where I got my trail name, my self-designated self trail name of Internate. Um, <laughs> this explains itself, right? Um, so finally, after like seven days of riding across India, I finally hit the mountains um, and get out of the desert, and that's where I start seeing monkeys and um, all sorts of crazy animals. I don't even know what they are. Um, uh, I got some cool videos, but I'm not going to waste your time with videos of monkeys and stuff. I got, I got covered in the colors and stuff for the uh, Huli Festival there. Um, it's like a big festival of love there they do once a year. Everybody was super happy, um, just stoked about this festival. Like, I could not believe how positive the people were. I was just like, wow, like, this is like a Christmas happening. People were, like, genuinely, actually positive about it, you know? Like, I don't know. Um... I don't necessarily understand the festival. They just come, covered me in the calorie stuff because they liked me. Um, I don't really know what it is. It's chalk or cornstarch? Anybody else know about Huli? Uh, this is getting more in the monkey areas. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's just some shots of India. It kind of all looks the same. It's just stay on that same road all the time. And finally, I made it to Kolkata. Um, Josh... Hey, where did I poop if there are no campsites? Um, in Europe, Europe, there's always a coffee shop. Europe, the cool thing about Europe is nothing like the states. Like, there's always something. Like, you can go to this way up into the mountains, and there will be a lodge there uh, that's been there for 200 years or something. Um, India, people just go like on the side of the road. Um, 
So, you know, you got to go inside the road, go inside the road. Um, but yeah, I hit, hit Kolkata after nine days. Um, Kolkata was kind of like the opposite of Mumbai. Uh, there wasn't any smoke to it. Um, it was a bit lusher there. It was a very... Um, the remnants of British imperialism really resonated in in Kolkata. Like, it just uh, a good example would be this thing, the Queen Victoria Palace or something. They built this giant palace dedicated to Queen Victoria in like 1907 or something. Um, I tried to take my bike inside, and they're like, "No, you can't do that. It's a special place, idiot." It's like last morning before I left India. I can't remember what that tower is significant for, but um, so yeah, India was. Let me just go back a little bit. Uh, India was the first place I've ever been to in my whole life and experienced genuine culture shock. Um, I consider myself a fairly open-minded person and not really surprised by a lot. But after going to India, I was overwhelmed by all the different types of stimulation, like not sure how to process some things and confused about others. Um, it was a rough experience, but it was, it was very enlightening, and um, I'd recommend anybody go to India once just to really actually understand what the heck is going on, because it's, it's nothing like here. I mean, absolutely. There's... There's things about people that's always the same no matter where you go, but India is definitely a world away from the U.S. and Europe. Um, so, Australia. Uh, this is just a random photo from kind of into Australia, um, but I'll rewind a bit. Um, so I had said that the Indian Pacific Real Race was kind of the whole uh, key planning piece of my trip around the world. Um, a guy who had also done the Trans Am the second year, um, lady who did it the third year, they got together and organized this race across Australia. And I was just like, well, I'm thinking about going around the world and I gotta go across Australia, so let's jam this in there. And so I found myself in a bike race with 70 other people racing across Australia. I'd been all by myself at that point. And it was really cool to see all these people that I'd mentioned before, Mike Hall, Juliana Burring, uh, Jess Carlson, Sarah Hammond, uh, Brendonica, a couple other people. It was just ridiculous. It was super cool to be, like, I was in a quarter of the way into my journey. It was super cool to meet, like, my peers and my heroes all of a sudden and just be, like, rejuvenated with all the stoke of this. Like, it, after getting across two legs of this, I'd kind of gotten weary, but this was like, all right, I'm doing this. I'm racing around the world. Layer, or level three, you know, like, race across Australia. So it was, um, 3,400 mile race. Um, most people were from Australia. It's not very cheap to get to Australia, so they had a bunch of local racers, Australians. Um, uh, that's pretty much it. Does anybody have any Indian Pacific Rail Race questions offhand? Yeah, whatever. How many miles? I'm sorry? Poisonous animals? Uh, there's snakes there and stuff, lots of spiders. Um, I'll get into more the, the wildlife of Australia. Um, Where does it run between? Huh? Where does it run between? What do you mean? Like start to end. Oh, uh, started in Perth and then rode to Sydney. So, um, anyways, the race started off. 
Um, it was like, it was absolutely manic. Uh, this was the biggest event our sport had ever seen. The names in it were the most high profile names ever. The racing going down was the most brutal, fiercest racing ever. I did 240 miles the first day and I sat at 40th out of 70 racers. Um, it was insane. Um, uh, we got started. It's, it's, Australia is a crazy, crazy, crazy country and people that live here, live there will totally agree with me when I say that. Um, it's, 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 it's its own island. It's like, it's, I expected it to be like Texas, but British, and it's not. It's, it's Australia. <laughs> it's, it's its own special place. Um, so the first couple hundred miles, there's kind of places to go and buy drinks and stuff. And then after that, for about 2,000 miles, it's just kind of this death march from roadhouse to roadhouse. Um, what a roadhouse is, is it's just a gas station with some hotels in it and uh, two or three people work in there and that's about it. And we just, it'd be, sometimes it'd be 50 miles, sometimes it'd be like 120 miles. Um, the roadhouses were always uh, really weird places to go to. I mean, the locals were confused by us. They're just like, what? It was the first time anybody had raced a group of bikes across Australia. So the locals are just like, why are you guys doing this? It's a race. Whatever. Um, uh, my memory gets a little blurry here. Um, it got started. It's 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 a it was a long it felt it was the point of the rate point of going around the world where I'm like is this ever gonna end like it was just getting started um, some of you may be feeling somewhere right now um, that's kind of your typical outbacky Nullarbor sort of street scene the Nullarbor is a roughly thousand mile stretch Null Arbor means no trees you can see trees in this shot but um mostly treeless and yeah, I don't have trees like we have trees here um, question yep uh, road trains like semis with five or six trailers or something is it so it's generally three but full-size trailers on the road trains um, they'll come by at like 75 80 miles an hour um, about every 10 15 minutes the the truck drivers they all got wind of our race and we're signaling to each other over the radios where we were at and stuff. Uh, the truck drivers were really friendly, um, but they did not slow down in the least little bit as they passed. They'd give us the whole lane as they passed, but they would go by at full speed. Um, so it's just a two-lane road, and these things are doing 80 miles an hour on the other side. Um, the, the frequency of them and the severity of the, uh, the shock effect from the wind coming as they passed me actually cracked my wrists. From like 400 road trains flying by me, they would jerk the front end of the bike, and the force would be transferred to my wrist. And I cracked my wrist just riding along. Like first for me, I've never cracked a wrist just riding along. Like um, so, I got to. So that was kind of the first blow to me going around the world. Um, my shoes were a little bit too rough, and I had some swelling on my feet at that point. Um, how many miles were you in at this point? 
5,000 miles in, so about a third of the way around. Um, starting to show a little bit of wear. Um, Australia is just, just the roughest place ever. Uh, the first bit of it is super intense. Um, the ants are ridiculous. They don't have fire ants. They're not like a bitey sort of ant, but they have millions and millions of tiny little ants. So it's just like the second you lay down to sleep, you're just swarmed in these ants and they're just crawling all over you. They'll get into everything. Like trying to sleep with these ants is next to impossible. So the first week, pretty much just go to sleep as long as you could sleep until the ants woke you up, which is like two, three hours. Um, and then just get back at it, start going again. Um, and horse flies, there were three solid days of nonstop horse flies. And when I say nonstop, I mean like three to ten of them at one time biting me and shaking them off and like swerving all the way across the road as I sprint to try and drop them and stuff. Like there was three solid days of just nonstop horse fly bites. Um, I didn't really sleep much. I kind of lost my mind. That was really where I started to crack was from the horse flies. Um, kangaroos, so, you know, it's kangaroo country. Woohoo, let's go see some kangaroos. And I did not see a kangaroo for the first 1,800 miles of the bike ride. I saw over 3,000 corpses for kangaroos on the side of the road. The road trains take them out in the night. You'll see the road trains missing headlights because they just hit one. Like, it was weird. It's just a sea of kangaroo corpses over there. Australia, it's 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 uh, it's exciting. Um, this is my friend Andy. Uh, I have met this guy on uh, three different continents in the span of three months. Uh, he was here for the Trans Am race last year, and then I met him on the TCR in October, and then I met him down in Australia just in March. I snapped a photo of him here because he's a cool guy. Um, this is this just cracks me up for some reason. Bean coffee? I don't know. It seems a little weird. This is the Baladonia Roadhouse. Um, this, this was a funny story because I rolled into there, ordered some french fries and a veggie burger to go. ordered two things of french fries, actually. And uh, my friend Andy in the photo before, he came in and ordered a burger and then he went to the restroom, and my food had came, and then his food came out, and then he went to like, he thought my french fries were his french fries, because the french fries were like $5 extra on top of the burger, and he started to take them, and I was just like, no, those are my french fries. <laughs> it was just a funny, endearing moment of desperation between friends. <laughs> Nobody's touching my fries. Um... And then the ladies that worked at this roadhouse were the most unin uninterested in us ever. Like, they just wanted us to leave. They didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were kind of confused by them, too. You could tell it was like a mutual disunderstanding going on between us. Like, words don't really suffice. This is a piece of Skylab. 
remember Skylab? Uh, it was the proto prototype protege of the International Space Station. They finally pushed it into the atmosphere like back in the 90s and it came crashing down over Australia. They drug some of the pieces of it into the Skylab Museum uh, at the Baladonia Roadhouse, which is just this. This is the Skylab Museum. Um, <laughs> you got to take time out to do some sightseeing. So This is just me waiting for my burger is what that really was. Um, the 90-mile straight, Australia's longest straight road. I was really excited to hit this point as it was just like the first sort of thing to reach in Australia is a straight road. <laughs> this, this was the first landmark of getting somewhere. Uh, what's to that? That's how bleak Australia is. Uh, beautiful sunrise in the morning. Um, sunrises and sunsets in Australia are to die for. Absolutely to die for. I mean, just look at the layers on the clouds. Um, look at them soda bottles. Um, it's miraculously in halfway across Australia. Uh, just like that. Uh, the first part of the race was very fast. I made, I think I got halfway across Australia in like eight days or something. Um, Yes, yeah, Australia is very flat for the most part. They've got some Alps in the southeastern portion of the country, but for the most part, it is a pancake across the whole dang country. Since it's south of the equator, did the mountains go down? Yeah, yeah. Are there any uphill starts? No uphill starts. Uh. So this is as I made it into some hill country. It was very chilly that morning, and I uh, decided to warm myself up with a hand dryer. I spent a good hour um, drying my sweat out from climbing up the hill and just hanging out in that hand dryer with my like, back of my jacket up under it, sort of dry all the sweat on my back. Things get desperate sometimes, and you take a photo just to remind yourself that you're still alive. Um, cool shot of a graveyard. Uh, that's my hand slowly decaying from uh, that's, yeah, that's about one third of the way in. Um, I could have used some moisturizer, maybe, but You wearing gloves? No, no, no gloves. I don't know why. I just had to gross y'all out a little bit. Um, finally I reached the town of Adelaide. Uh, maybe 2,000 miles in or something. Um, so this race was huge for Australia. Australia only has 23 million people in it. So that's like, what, 10 times the population of Portland for a whole continent. I just came from India with a billion people to Australia, 23 million people. And guess which country I felt safer riding a bike in? <laughs> India, yeah. Australia's crazy. Totally crazy. Um... Some folks are very entitled about their road usage there. They're not used to smaller vehicles being on the road. Um, that was one of the biggest observations I had. Um, and this is when it really started to dawn on me why road culture behaves a certain way. My personal theory, or at least feeling on it, it's probably pretty true. Um, Europe's filled with light 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 vehicle, motor traffic, uh, tines of, tine, lots of tiny little mopeds, bicycles, 
small cars. Uh, India, same thing. It's filled even more with tinier traffic. Like lots of people don't own personal vehicles there. It's just taxis, bicycles, horse trolleys, horse carriages, whatever. Australia has none of that. There's no motorcycles. There's no bike traffic. There's nothing. So nobody is used to seeing anybody on the road out there. If they see you on the road, you're an anomaly and you're a target. Um, lots of Australian friends agree with me on that. Maybe I'm biased. Maybe I shouldn't talk so bad in Australia. But, uh, that's just the reality of living on the roads and dealing with what we have to deal with as cyclists. Um, like as I rode out of Adelaide, I was accosted three times. Um, just told to get off of the road. I mean, three times within the span of an hour. Um, that started kind of getting into my head, and I was like, I don't know if I like Australia so much. Um, I don't want to hate on a country or a place. It's got a lot going for it. Um, but it's kind of scary. Um, no hats, hoodies, or work clothes. So they gave me a room wearing a hat, a hoodie, and what was essentially my work clothes. Um, so make whatever judgment you want to about this bar in Australia, but um, endless amounts of beautiful sunrises and sunsets and sodas and rainbows. Ketchup! My life is about ketchup. Okay, so I live on potatoes, and if you don't have ketchup to go with potatoes, then life is terrible um, but they charge you 75 cents for a packet of ketchup there so I, I spent $2.25 to get those three packets of ketchup and I squeezed every last little drop out of them um, they don't do ketchup in Australia very much um, okay so this is where things get kind of sad um, got about halfway across Australia and Mike Hall, um, he was hit by a car and uh, didn't live. And it was a very terrible moment for the whole of the endurance cycling community. Uh, he was pretty much our leader and hero and inspiration for just about everything we do. And um, this was just like the biggest head fuck ever. Um, I nearly quit when I found out we lost him. I was just like, you know what, guys, I'm going home. Uh, this just doesn't have any meaning anymore. And uh, I talked to my girlfriend back there, and she's like, what do you mean it doesn't have any meaning? Just go ride your bike. That's all you have to do. Um, he gave me his pump to take around the world. And so I decided to get back on the bike and take it around the world. Um, that was what I did for myself, um, a little bit for him. Um, it was it was a sort of life changing moment. Things have not been the same since then, but life goes on and we all keep going on. So at that point, the race had been canceled. Um, some people chose to finish the route. Uh, I so the route went through the mountains at that point. Um, being in my own race around the world, I looked for a chance to not go through the mountains, so I essentially exited the race at that point and took a very nice flat way across the rest of Australia as opposed to climbing through the mountains and really remote services. Um, so I didn't finish the Indian Pacific wheel race. Um, most people didn't, unfortunately. Realistically, never did. Um, <clears throat> but we all found our own way. We got to... Um, there was a big memorial for Mike in Sydney. Everybody uh, 
could, eventually made their way to Sydney. Um, I spent the next week just kind of trying to find myself and find, find my stride in this again to get, get to Sydney. And so, so that's what I did. I started, um, so I took a couple days off. I got a hotel and I just kind of reassessed and I took that photo of the pump and decided to get back on the bike. Next day, I made it to Victoria. There's, there's what, five states in Australia, and they're, they're all like larger than Texas. Every state, it's just huge. So this is the third state I hit at like week two. Um, I've ridden through Western Australia. What's the central one called? Central Australia. It's really boring. It's like Western Australia, Central Australia, Northern Australia. They're really unimaginable unimaginative with their state names. Um, this is kind of funny, kind of sad. Australia is really good about putting picnic tables everywhere. They don't do bus stops, but they do do picnic tables, which is like, I could live out of a picnic table. It's like my own personal Howard Johnson. Like you show me a picnic table and I'm just like clothes off, shoes off, spread out. I got some food going. I got the pipe over there. Like. Um, <laughs> Uh, I have a running gag about what I do is uh, a lot like Don Quixote. It's really kind of pointless. Like I'm in this never-ending fight with something that doesn't actually exist. Um, windmills are kind of a reminder of that. I see a windmill, it reminds me of Don Quixote fighting windmills and stuff. Um, I've never even read Don Quixote. I don't know anything about Don Quixote. But I still make the, uh, the connection anyway. Ah, this is good stuff. So... <laughs> Australia's messed up. Um, it's, it's nature of foods. Nature of foods. They're really saying natural foods, like nature. Uh, that's just... Cla like, they, their slang and the way they bastardize English is beautiful over there. They just destroy it. Um, everything's shortened there to... Like, they just call everything the first syllable of the word with an S or an O or a Y at the end of it. Um, like, my, like, my name shortened would just be, like, nays. People call me nays or, yeah. Um, this is another good example of uh, Australia's pedestrian traffic in infrastructure, uh, which they don't have crosswalks there. They have little islands in between that you can stand on while the traffic goes whizzing by. And it's labeled as such the refuge island. Which is funny because I, Australia is a bunch of, you know, convicts or whatever. It's a, a big refuge island to begin with. It has smaller refuge islands and no sort of infrastructure for pedestrians or anything. It's, it's bad there. Um, that's probably the best photo I got of Australia. Um, uh, so this is just some wheat fields in the southeastern part. Um, this is funny because it was dry as could all get out. Like they they burn the fields over there. Like we used to burn the fields here to like bring the nutrients back to the soil here and get it ready to be tilled. But in Australia, they just keep them burning whenever. So everything was on fire that day, and the fire danger was low. Australia. <laughs> Does that start at high? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of places for naps in Australia. Um, <laughs> finally made it to the last 
state, New South Wales. Uh, I was genuinely finally finding some personal happiness in, in myself again. Been about a week since we lost Mike, and um, there's some more infrastructure of Australia. Parts of Oakland, the town, have 50 kilometer an hour streets. I just don't understand. Why? (laughs) Is that a warning? Is it a statement? Is it. Oakland's also was basically three streets. Watch for bikes. No infrastructure, just just watch for them. We're there. Um, Australia has really good sodas. Um, They're super expensive. I spent most of my money on sodas there. Uh, And finally, I made it to Sydney. It was that easy. I rode my bike across Australia. Um, I had a policy of like five people meet me there. They had also done the Indian Pacific wheel race. Um, It was really cool to... Reconnect with some friends afterwards and share some stories and mourn a little bit and just kind of re-identify with who I was and why was I even doing this. At this point, um, it's actually pretty close back to the U.S., but still it felt so far away. Um, so basically when I found out we lost Mike, I kind of came up with this shortcut to Sydney, and I'm like, that's it, I'm taking a shortcut to Sydney, and then I'm going to New Zealand, because New Zealand sounds amazing, it sounds like a great place to heal emotionally, and just enjoy the beauty, and uh, that's pretty much what, what it was, so that's Australia, any more Australian questions? Do I try what? Vegemite? No, I tried Vegemite here and knew not to try it there. <laughs> no, I saw no koalas. No koalas, no. Um, wombats. I saw one wombat. Dingoes. Dingoes. I didn't see any dingoes. They have a big fence built across Australia to keep the dingoes in dingo land. Thank goodness. Did you ever get to so I saw three live kangaroos. I saw two um, back where you saw that photo of me with my hand at the hand dryer. As I went through the mountains, I saw a couple. And then the other one I saw, I was asleep in just some random town. And I woke up and I just kind of looked over my side and it's just like hop, 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 hop. It's just weird. <laughs> the third kangaroo I've seen is just... When I woke up in the middle of my sleep, I could have dreamed it. I don't even know. Like, was it real? Was it not? They're just kind of like deer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, they're everywhere. Um, So I got all packed up in um, Sydney. I called the bikes out there. They they got a box for me. as for boxes, uh, there was a place in New Zealand that I'd already called ahead before I got there to see if they had a box. Um, a little more on that later. Uh, but anyways, I flew to Invercargill, which is the southern part of the South Island. There's two islands in New Zealand, basically the South Island and the North Island. Uh, I won't try to pronounce their traditional names because I'll bastardize it, botch it. Um, but... It's, it's a beautiful place, like flying into it. It was like right at sunset, and I flew right along the 
huge mountain range that's on the South Island where they did all the epic Lord of the Rings filming and stuff. Um, uh, I don't know if any, any Lord of the Rings fans in here. Yeah, a couple people. See, um, yeah, New Zealand was it was a literal breath of fresh air. Um, it's it's definitely similar to Australia, but it is um, not quite so Mad Maxy. Like the guy who wrote Mad Max was from Australia. He was inspired by Australia to write it and the craziness and. Australia is like Mad Max, straight up. New Zealand is more like Lord of the Rings or something. Um, this is just some clock tower in Invercargill. Uh, the first second I, I hopped out of, um, hopped off the plane, um, guy there is just like, ah, oh, you know what we say about people who ride bikes here is that they're too poor to afford a car, and that was my welcome dog <laughs> to New Zealand. Um, Anyway, so I guess I'll kind of get going here. Um, South Island in New Zealand is very epic, hardcore. Uh, it's a little south in the longitude or latitude, can't remember what. Um, it's not tropical by any means. Uh, I spent about three days there before a typhoon hit. Um, it was already pouring and like everything was at flood stage as I arrived and then the typhoon was coming so uh, I had to make a decision um, the, the one route I'd already planned was destroyed from an earthquake um, so I had planned another route but due to the typhoon it probably meant that there would be snow at elevation going the other way um, so I decided to fly off of the island, uh, which is still within the rules of the race. Um, so yeah, I, I spent all of uh, three days on the South Island of uh, New Zealand. Didn't take any photos because pouring on me the whole time. Uh, I was kind of just trying to mend personally and just soak up the sights. Um, saw this clean burning coal for sale. This was at the gas station. Um, I just thought it was weird. Uh, and then, you, boom, I'm gone. I'm out of, out of New Zealand. I hopped on a plane. You can see how it's all flooded. Like, this is, like, just before the typhoon hit. Um, so you can only imagine what it looked like afterwards. Got some cool shots of the flight just because I was like, well, there's South Island gone. So finally, it's been two months now. I don't know. I get to Wellington, uh, which is my other antipode, the other opposite of the globe. Um, so I'm only... 6,000 miles in. I'm still only a third of my mileage. Um, I cut 800 out of Europe. I cut like 1,000 out of Australia. Uh, I was kind of behind in my mileage at this point. Um, at this point, I was realizing that I was not going to be a record world, hold, uh, world record holder for how fast I was going. I had realized this long before then, but um, I mean, that was kind of the goal. Was that, that was part of the inspiration, was to aim for the record of riding around the world. I didn't have any grand illusions of Hitting it, but um, Wellington's a cool little place. It's a nuclear-free city. I mean, what, what more can you want? They have earthquakes there all the time. You wouldn't want a nuclear reactor anyway. Uh, caffeine isn't a drug; it's a vitamin. Just want to remind everybody of that. You should remember that. Um, more windmills. Um, so finally, I got to the North Island of New Zealand, and this is where I really fell in love with. 
New Zealand. Uh, the North Island's a little more tropical. Um, the water is actually warmer there, unlike what we have out in the Pacific here. Um, it's serious sheep country there. There is so much sheep and a lot of cows, a lot of dairy going on. Like, it's just, I've never seen so many sheep and cattle just jammed into the certain area before. Lots of lots of dairy going on. Every single town you go into has a little ice cream place. Um, they had the best best uh, Asian restaurants and best Indian restaurants there. Every little tiny town had like three Asian or in, uh, Indian restaurants. Um, so the takeout food was amazing. You could just call ahead to the next town and they'd have it all ready for you. And it was nice after hitting Australia and New Zealand, it was it was nice to be somewhere that just spoke English again. It's going around the world, and my brain's exhausted. Like the the comfort zone of being in your own native language is always appreciated. So, um, this is cool to see. Family violence is never okay. Um, Taranaki is the western portion of the North Island. Um, it's it's the sort of it feels like real island culture there. Like everybody's just laid back and chill and calm, and I mean, not everybody, but for the most part, it's the place to go. Like, um, like the, you see this sort of stuff. Like, <laughs> Trump is president. Be afraid. Be very afraid. So I guess this is this is some expat living there, um, cracking jokes. Got a cool bonus cow. They had donkeys on the lot. This this was the coolest farm I found in New Zealand. Um, this is Mount Taranaki. Um, this was the sort of kind of like aha epiphany moment of the whole trip to New Zealand, where I was like, I feel like I'm where I need to be right now. Like this is somewhere I want to go back to. Mount Taranaki. Uh, they use it in a lot of films as a stand-in for Mount Fuji uh, because it appears perfectly symmetrical from most angles, aside from this little bump right there on the side there. Um, the wildlife, more wildlife. Uh, nice, <laughs> nice photo of myself. Um, and was, I was just, this is me just having a good time. I'm finally like kind of starting to get over the trauma and stress of this. It's a nice volcanic sand beach. That mountain is way back there. You can barely see it in the shot. Um, it was just a special moment, so I took a selfie. Uh, and it just turns into the Shire. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the Shire, straight up. Like, just rolling hills, rivers and stuff. Um, more rolling hills. Um, cool stuff about New Zealand. They're cool to, they're hip to backpacking culture there. Um, so there's all these hostels everywhere for like 20 bucks a night. You just roll up stinking and filthy and they understand that you're just a traveling hippie and they throw you right into your slot. Uh, good place to go if you want to be a traveling hippie. Um, and finally, this is the big exit of, of uh, Auckland, so it took me about 10 days of New Zealand. Um, I did very small days. I camped out almost the whole time. I was pretty much busted at the time. Um, New Zealand's great. Go to New Zealand. It's a little expensive for the flight, but you'll love it. I guarantee it. Um, 
So yeah, as I was riding into New Zealand, I actually called the bike shop. Called the bike shop a month ahead of time. I'm like, hey, if I come riding up sometime in a month, can I get a bike box from Raul? And they're like, yeah. And then I called them that day, and they're like, oh, we're too busy to give you a bike box. And I'm just like, screw you guys. So went and found another bike shop. Got a bike box. Um, uh, I rode like 60 miles this day. Got the bike boxed up. Got on the plane. Flew 15 hours straight to Vancouver. Got back on the bike. And then rode like another 60 miles to a hotel. So it was just like, it was the first time I've ever just like rode like a 60 mile day, got on a plane, not really slept, hopped off, rode some more. It was, felt like I'd really fallen into the zone. So that's, that's basically it for New Zealand. Anybody, any other New Zealand questions? All right. So after making it stateside, I landed in Vancouver. Um, had a couple days to get back to Portland. This is Mount Baker, just up north of Bellingham. Um, so I was pretty much just kind of co- running on fumes at this point. Um, wasn't like too worse for the wear, but you know, the bike was worn out, the tires were worn out, the body was worn out, sole was worn out. I mean, everything is pretty tired at this point. I did not get a lot of photos between Vancouver and Portland. That was the second photo I took, and then eh, I got back to Portland, and I started doing, so I'm not around the world yet, FYI. I'm only halfway at this point. I'm barely not even halfway. Uh, For those of you checking your watches, I'll speed up a little bit here for the North American spot. Um, But yeah, these are my brake pads I pulled out, uh, because they're just totally shot. I've seen way worse than that, but that's still pretty bad. Um, that's 8,000 miles? That's about 8,000 miles, yeah. Um, they actually they actually started, the, the pads started coming out of the calipers as I was rolling into Portland last 50 miles. I did not use my brakes. Um, it's totally flat right into Portland for the most part. So, so I took Highway 30 coming yeah, in. It and it was raining. I rode with that guy back there who didn't have a taillight. <laughs> um... So I got back to Portland. I spent three days in Portland uh, with my girlfriend to just rejuvenate and figure out the will to continue. Um, it wasn't hard to find the will to continue, but I definitely needed three days of downtime after everything that had happened. Um, losing somebody really close in such a scary incident with a car and continuing to be racing on the roads. Like, I, I really wanted off of the roads, but I could not escape from the roads. So, three days in Portland. Finally, I got back on the bike, headed down to Salem. Got my Coca-Cola. Everything's right with the world. So, yeah, I missed 1,700 miles, 2,000 miles going across Europe and Australia. So, I had to make up an extra 2,000 miles in North America. Um, so when I say I went around the world... I went around the world in much the same manner that people had done it before me. I didn't go pedal straight through Asia or anything. It wasn't the most perfect around the world voyage where I touched every country or something. It basically it was what it was. Um, this is getting on in California. Um, I had my bike stolen in California last year, so I was very excited to. I don't know. This is in California. It's still Oregon. Um, this is what I like, the nuclear-free zone as you exit Lane County. If you've ever ridden down to Eugene or whatever, you'll see that. 
I always like seeing nuclear-free something. So. Um, this is starting to exit Oregon. Um, starts to get edge of Oregon going into California is some really high mountains. Um, That's this, on I-5. This is on I-5. So this is where I started the, the real bulk of the interstate riding. Um, I-5 in Oregon, you can ride the interstate anywhere except uh, Portland and Medford. So you can legally cycle the interstate pretty much all of the state. Uh, California, I've been kicked off by the highway patrol three times there for trying to ride on the highway. Once legally, twice illegally. Um, and then another couple times they tried to kick me off because they didn't know the law. And I didn't know the law. Nobody knew the law. Um, <laughs> and I'll get more to that in a sec. Uh, Siskiyou Mountain Summit, highest pass on I-5. That's kind of cool. This is getting into California. What was your highest point in the whole journey? Uh, highest point in... The whole trip was Raton Pass at the border of New Mexico and Colorado at like 9,000 feet. Um, some side road in California going into weed. Um, Mount Shasta, some really colorful sodas going on. Another shot of Mount Shasta. This is, oh man, does anybody know the name of that mound of land in the Northern California Valley? There's those mountains there. Lassen? No, it's not Lassen. It's in the, it's in the Central Valley. Anyways, the Central Valley of California is a very desolate and boring place. It's about a 600-mile spread, much like the Willamette Valley, but even further. And there's nothing in it for, except for farmland. And there's this little batch of mountain peaks in it. It's the most scenic thing in the California Valley. Um, there's the Yellow Bypass Wildlife Area, which is not very scenic, so I bypassed it. <laughs> Yellow. Uh, <clears throat> Lots of uh, little bayous and stuff. That's your typical California sunrise. So this is so this is where it gets gets funny with the highway riding. Um, it says pedestrians, motorcycles, motor-driven cycles prohibited. Um, it actually said bicycles here once, and they put some sort of official state tape over it to cover that up. I'm just like, well, that's cool. You can see really faintly it says bicycles there. This is where the gray area of highway riding began. And I took the photo so I could show it to the cop when he pulled me over, and I did. And he said, I don't know what the law is, and I kept riding my bike. Um, that's, that's how I got across California. Um, ran into this place on Route 66, which uh, me and that guy right there raced across. Um, his name, yeah. Beautiful sunrises and sunsets. This is going into the Mojave. Um, just no services for 100 miles. Uh, not the longest stretch I've done without services, actually. That would be like 160 miles, but um, there's this. It's actually on Google Maps, this place, listed as abandoned gas station. And when you get there, it's just an abandoned gas station with shoes tied all over it. That's at mile 80 of the 100 miles of no services. Uh, typical Southern California sort of vibe. Um, this is in Arizona. It only seemed, seemed appropriate. Um, you got your cactuses and stuff. Um, there's another sign I like. You just get this kind of use shoulder only. But yeah, so I rode I-10, I rode I-40. 
Four dice. Seventy-six. Eighty. Bunch of other highways. Lots of interstate riding. Uh, it's I enjoy riding on the interstate. It's got a huge wide shoulder. Um, the traffic gets kind of scary, but I just like the big shoulder. And, and, and to ride across the American Southwest, it's pretty much your only choice just to ride the highway. Like there's there's no easy way across the American Southwest unless you just walk through the dirt or something. Um, reach the Continental Divide. Exit 42. 42, you know, is the meaning of life if you're a Douglas Adams fan. Um, <laughs> big rig party, whatever. Continental Divide, that's kind of where it all started for me. Um, so it was kind of cool to cross over it. Um, pyrotastic is, the, is what they use to market their fireworks. Finally made it over the divide. Cool. Uh, this is Las Cruces, New Mexico. I found a legitimate place that sells vegan pizza. Vegan pizza in in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Never would have expected it. Um, so basically, Las Cruces is right above El Paso. El Paso is kind of like hell on earth. Um, at this point, I was heading towards Texas and I just immediately started curving up towards Colorado because there's good stuff in Colorado. Um, <laughs> Texas is not the place to keep charging into without any sort of plan. So. I started bolting north at this point. I'd pretty much planned my route from Portland all the way down to New Mexico. Planned it all the way up to over San Augustine Pass. This is where I went through White Sands with all the bomb testing grounds and stuff. Um, windmills, whole theme for everything. Um, Santa Rosa, Route 66 again. So I crossed Route 66 in Barstow, rode down through the southern part of Arizona, New Mexico, rode all the way up to the northern part of New Mexico where it runs back into Route 66. Um, at this point, I began improvising my route because I had to make up miles. I had a planned route at this point, And then after that, I was totally winging it. Like, just how can I get miles in? So uh, I went to Colorado, you know, did what I had to do there, um, <laughs> and then just started following the wind. Um, the wind blew me from basically Denver. It blew me all the way out of Colorado. It blew me up into Nebraska. Um, it blew me down across Nebraska, and then it blew me back up across Nebraska. Across Iowa, and then the wind blew me all the way to Minneapolis. So the wind blew me from Denver to Minneapolis, and I just kind of followed it every day based on whichever way the wind blew. It was it was really amazing to just wake up and going that way. I mean, it worked. It worked out miraculously. Was that to achieve a certain number of miles? Yes. So I had to get these extra miles in. Um, How many miles did you have to do for the race then? 18,000. 18,000. I was 2,000 short. Was. I, I ended up doing them. But, uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, this is this is actually Route 66 overlap. Um, heading towards Santa Fe. Just some cool New Mexico sort of beasting stuff. What were you using to track the mileage? Uh, Ride with GPS. It's just a app made by some folks here in Portland. Um, that and I had a couple satellite trackers on me that were beaming that up to the satellite. So I had a couple different ways I was tracking it, just for proof in case I actually did hit the record, which I didn't. Nobody cares. 
Uh, this is so. This is yeah. Perfect welcome to colorful Colorado. Uh, just covered in snow. This was the most. This is the biggest pass of the climb. This is the wettest, coldest, roughest moment of the whole trip. Probably I was just absolutely soaked, and then um, it was like 34 degrees as I rode down like a 2,000 foot downhill for seven miles, just getting soaked and frozen to bone. I've never been so cold and frozen as I was seven miles after this photo. <laughs> um, and then I rode up to Pueblo, which is the Trans Am. The Trans Am uh, is about halfway across the country right there in Pueblo, Colorado. Um, he's from Montana. This is exiting Denver. Uh, this is starting to enter the Great Plains. So I did 1,600 miles of Great Plains riding, which is a lot. Um, on the Trans Am, I think we do like 500 miles of Plains riding, which seems like a ton. But I did 1,600 miles of Plains riding, which is... You know, my, I'm still not mentally recovered from all of it. Um, it might show a little bit. Uh, 76 Interstate, I post that because the Bike Centennial Route 76 has a little bit of significance. Uh, whatever. I finally reached Nebraska. Um, and that's what you get. That's the Plains Life. Grain silo, 100 miles away, and then finally you reach it and then you turn around. and. It's like K5. What? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this, this photo here, I remember just feeling so weird, like, why, why am I here right now? <laughs> I'm, uh, 247 miles from Omaha, sweet. Uh, so I followed the Platte River all the way across Nebraska. Um, Nebraska is a pretty beautiful state to ride across versus somewhere, say, like Kansas, which is genuinely uninteresting. Um... Here it starts to look a little more Midwesty. Uh, this is Minnesota, Blue Earth County. Pretty cool name for a county. Um, this is St. Paul. Um, so I rode into Minnesota. I rode to Minnesota because they have the world's, or at least they have the U.S.'s only vegan barbecue joint there. So I rode 1,500 miles, I think, basically just to get vegan barbecue. Um, it's also where I got my first flat since leaving Portland. I did uh, 3,500 miles out of Portland, and I finally get a flat. Got a new tire there, got riding again. And finally get to Missouri, my home state. Um, this was where things kind of felt normal again. It felt like I was really doing what I was meant to be doing in life. Um, Missouri's a very diverse state. It's bordered by eight states. Uh, it's called the Show Me State. I have no idea other what that really means. We've kind of taken it to be like, I'm from Missouri, you can show me because I can't figure it out no other way. Like, um, uh, anyway, we're a bunch of hillbilly rednecks in Missouri. Um, anytime I'm taking dumb photos, you know I'm in a good mood. It's just pretty out. Uh, I found a flat way across northern Missouri. Missouri is one of the hilliest damn states you'll ever find. And I managed to, and the wind is still blowing me here. The wind blew me out of Minnesota. It blew me all the way across Iowa. I did like a 215 mile day across Iowa in like 14 hours with like a 20 mile an hour tailwind. Um, I 
hit Missouri. The wind blew me in like an S shape across the state. Um, I had a really cool dot stalker come find me, a fellow Trans Am racer. He just showed up. He lives in Missouri. He's this is the Katy Trail. If you ever heard of the Katy Trail, it's about a 200 mile gravel trail that runs across the state of Missouri. Um, it's just an old rail trail that they ripped up the tracks and threw some gravel down on, and it's just a foggy morning on it. I grew up riding the Katy Trail in Missouri with my parents, uh, so it was a super treat to hop on it for a little bit. Um, it's actually it's covered in trees for the most part. This is like in a town. I had to pedal against the wind on it through the trees strategically to get back across the state because I was heading to Texas, uh, which is where my family lives. So mind you, I started Vancouver, went down to Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, up to Minneapolis. And we we're down Iowa, Missouri, Portland, Missouri. Um, Fairy Grove, this is the really podunk town I grew up in in Missouri. Um, this is like the hills I grew up in. My driveway was just like right at the end of that one right there. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a part of the Trans Am. All the Trans Am racers hit these hills. Uh, it was just an amazing moment to just hit this spot and be like, yeah, this is, I grew up riding bikes here. Zark Mountain High Road, more places I grew up riding bikes. Um, so finally hopped into Arkansas of all places. I was genuinely afraid to ride in Arkansas. Um, I was I was afraid before I got to Arkansas, just because uh, we was growing up in Missouri. It's like the road gets bad. Um, uh, it's rednecky. Um, I saw the most Confederate flags of any state of all the states in Arkansas, not Kentucky, not Texas, not anywhere else. Um, but Arkansas ended up being a very it's the northern part of Arkansas is the Ozarks as well. The southern part of Missouri is the Ozarks. It's these big, beautiful hills, uh, lots of rollers. Uh, this is from the Big Dam Bridge uh, in Little Rock. Uh, and finally, I hit Texas. Why the hell would anybody go to Texas um, on a bike? So my family lives in Houston. Um, I had tried to ride down to my parents just last Last year, uh, I tried to ride from here down to California and had my bike stolen from me halfway through, through California. So getting down to Texas was another personal milestone for me. Of, Screw you guy who stole my bike. I rode my bike past California and got down to Texas. Lots of big bayous running all over, this, all over the state. El Camino Real, I have no idea what that is. It just looked cool at the time. Brazos Bend State Park, uh, this is part of what got flooded during the uh, storms recently down in Houston. This is where I rediscovered my love of nature when I lived in Texas. Lots of alligators there, they've got these, um, these big uh, bird viewing contraptions you can hike, hike up in them and then look at all the floodplains and alligators. Are you raising, raising your hand? No, just, just stretching. Uh, this is the same reservoir that breached as Houston just flooded recently. Um, another part of the whole feeling of the world falling apart behind me as I was going along. Um, so just a couple months later, that was, was water pouring over that thing. Uh, exiting Houston. So this is actually, I should back up a bit. 
Um, why did I go to Houston? So I run the Trans Am bike race. I uh, had planned to be done with my race around the world by the time I launched this year's Trans Am bike race. That didn't happen because I took too dang long riding my bike. So I had to go to Houston to my parents' house, fly back to Oregon, uh, launch the Trans Am bike race. Uh, this guy went over here and won it. Um, that guy went over there and he finished somewhere in the middle. Um, so in the middle of my bike ride, I had to stop and go send another bi bunch of bike riders on the way. Uh, Houston seemed like a good sort of target to just use my parents' house as a place to manage logistics while I flew back. I spent four days, so I lost four days of my round-the-world journey just flying back home for a bit. Um, I came back, got back on the bike, left Houston, started trying to find my groove again. Um, oh, gosh, this is, <laughs> this is Louisiana. It's Louisiana. It says... Hogs and bears can look similar. <laughs> know your targets. <laughs> I didn't see any bears in Louisiana. I think they killed them all. Um, finally, I crossed the Mississippi River. I rode 6,500 miles of the U.S. before I crossed the Mississippi River. <laughs> this is a logistical win, if you know anything about geography. Um, this guy here, this is Dylan Taylor. Um, so there's another race that launched this year called the American Trail Race that went from North Carolina and actually finished here in Oregon, like 12 people did it. Uh, I raced with him on the 2011 Divide. I talked with him about riding on the Trans Am. He'd ridden, ridden the Trans Am before and it's part of the inspiration for me going to racing the Trans Am. Uh, it's just a cool little synchronicity moment. I stalked him in Mississippi. Um, it was a cool thing. In this sport we have dot stalkers, just random people who find us. It was cool to be a dot who found another dot, like a weird sort of feeling. Um, this is the best. Illegal to shoot from highway. Like that's that's totally Mississippi and everything about it. Um, uh, this is Memphis. So I went to Memphis. I figured I hit I hit Minneapolis. I hit Houston. I hit Memphis. Just figured might as well do all the big cities in the Midwest if I can. I managed to go back to Missouri, so this is, I go Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, Arkansas, no photos of Arkansas again, because whatever, and got to Missouri, I'm all happy, um, Missouri River Trails, cool churches and stuff, crossed back over the Mississippi again, because uh, I just had to go back, um, and then I rode up to Chicago, uh, <laughs> just like, why not? Big cities. They had. There's a great vegan restaurant downtown, so that was pretty much the whole point of riding to Chicago. Is I knew knew where the good vegan food was. Um, that's leaving Chicago. It's super cool there. They have a huge bike path that runs around the whole of the lake. Um, and I got my last flat of the bike ride as I left Chicago. Just a big screw through through the tire there. Sent my girlfriend a photo of it, and she's like, "You got screwed." <laughs> she's, she's good with cheesy jokes. Um, beautiful sunsets and stuff. I mean, that's why I do this stuff. It's just just to get a to take in the sunset. Um, this is another cool sort of moment slash story. Uh, another friend of mine was hit by a car racing the Trans Am that same day. Um, 
I had been really disillusioned by the fact that that had happened. Um, just after I got off the phone with him, I saw one of these trucks drive by, and I really hastily tried to like snap a selfie with it as it was going by. Um, it's just transient. That's all it says. It's the bike, bike route I run. 76, uh, this is in Kentucky. This is the actual Trans Am route. So at this point, I had entered into um, seek and destroy mode on finding this guy right here, Evan Deutsch, who uh, ended up winning this year's Trans Am race. He was uh, leading it. I just kind of went and found him. Um, I was... Spent like three days in Kentucky kind of waiting for him to catch up. So I was just kind of doing these like fingers through Kentucky because you can't cross back over yourself. So, in, at, in the, as the rule states, so he just kind of was doing these big loops out through Kentucky until finally I found this guy. Uh, we got a hotel and then we parted ways and never saw each other again. Um, this is. Lord, I don't know. Ohio, maybe? I think it's New York is where I'm at. I, so I got out of Kentucky, rode up to Ohio, got into Pennsylvania, rode in through upstate New York. Um, upstate New York was very scary. The traffic there doesn't like bikes at all. They have huge shoulders on the road, so that's kind of nice. Um, another giant city, Montreal, maybe? I might be in Canada at this point. I don't know. Um, as, as the trip got towards its end, um, I was really ready to be done. Um, it was four months on the bike at that point. Um, we lost another racer in the race I run this year. Um, and that was a very upsetting moment that made me just really want to be done with the whole trip and just be done with riding bikes for a little while. I had about 2,000 miles to go when I found that out that happened and um, somehow I found it within me to go ride another 2,000 miles. I, I don't really know how I did it. I just did it. Um, so this is up in, this is up in uh, uh, Quebec. So Quebec was the first place where, so I, was, I didn't really know French Canada was a thing. I didn't know they were really, really French there. I always thought it was just like sort of French, you know, like, I mean, it's smack in the middle of a big landmass, like how densely French can it be? And it's, it's so French. Um, I went into a McDonald's and I ordered um, four shots of espresso and two apple pies. I'm like, can I get one cup? But they bring me four shots of espresso, and they brought me two bags of apple slices. And that's when I realized that I shouldn't try and order at French McDonald's, because uh, this just says Lake Globe. A uh, really bad shot, but it says the Lake Globe, so. Um, it's an old-ass church, 1768. This was kind of the welcome to the East Coast, welcome to ancient. Not really ancient, but you don't see churches from 1768, but like that on where we were. So, um, I love coffee. You can actually, in Canada, you can go to a gas station. In Europe, you can go to a gas station and get espresso, real espresso, not that mocha crap that comes out of the machine. Um, sexy shop. <laughs> Sexy puff. 
<laughs> it's funny, right? This is a funny place. I did not go in. I left. I was like... <laughs> It's just a cool bridge. <laughs> At this point, I'm, finally, I'm almost done. I'm like a few days from finished here. I'm just like, I'm I'm still at full tilt. Like, I've got to hit this mileage before, before my flight hits. Um, it wasn't like I was just coasting or something at this point. Like, I was still doing the absolute maximum every day. This, I don't even know what it is. It looks like some sort of nuclear reactor that just started to fall apart. I want the story on that, but... Um, so in... The photo doesn't really show up. They get such bad nor'easters there. I rode through about 60 miles of forest where it was just like the trees were just snapped in half. Like, the nor'easters hit and they absolutely just destroy the forest. I don't understand why how people live there. Um, in the summertime, it seems great, but I don't want to know what the winter's like. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a perfect example. Vince violence, and this has got this scary-looking dude just blowing wind. Like, it's intimidating. The landscape, the warning signs. Uh, finally made it to Nova Scotia. Look how blue my bar tape is, is. So I used two layers of bar tape to go around the world. I used the same set of bar tape the whole way around the world. I'm very proud of how clean my bike actually looks for being this far in. Uh, the hummingbird is my power animal, FYI. Um, and then finally, there it is. I made it to Halifax. I, I got in and I stopped at a hostel and the guy gave me some shots. And uh, the next morning I woke up found a nice spot on the waterfront. I still had another 30 miles to ride. Um, and then it just, the skies opened up and the most drenching rain ever came down. I rode up to the Halifax Truro Terminal. There's no sign at the Halifax Airport that's like, Halifax Airport. So this is literally the best I can do. Um, kind of disappointing, whatever. And I think that's it. Yeah. Nice, nice review to mine. Would I do it again? Yes. Yeah. I will do it again. It's going to take me a while. Are you back to Australia? Probably. Reluctantly. Yeah. Australia's messed up. Um, it was a learning experience. It's, it was something that um, I wouldn't say I learned a lot about myself, but it, it reinforced what I already knew about myself. Like, if there was any doubt about who I was before, after I finished that, there was no more doubt. I, like, I know who I am as a person now, and there's, there's no question about it. And riding 18,000 miles, that will do it to you. I say you either, you either make your way in this sport, or you find out exactly who you are, and you, you, either, you either get out or you go all the way. There's no, like, halfway in this. Here I am, I'm still alive, telling you that it happened, so be inspired and go ride your bikes, people. Where's the best food? Ah, uh, New Zealand had the best food, hands down. Yeah. 
not because of ketchup, but just because of the takeout food. Like, the Indian and the Asian restaurants were so on point there. That, yeah. How did you take it out with minimal carrying capacity? Years of training and <laughs> nothing, mean, nothing else to live. But they put it in the same boxes. <laughs> oh, taking out the takeout. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How did I eat all that takeout? <laughs> um, years of training <laughs> eating takeout. I mean, you just carry it in a bag. They'll wrap it in two bags, and you just ride till you get sick of carrying it, and then time for a lunch. And you sir. Yeah. Um, I just wondered what's the packing strategy because it looks like you carry a lot less than someone who's just picked you up. Yeah, it's it's just a sleeping kit in the back. You put a uh, sleeping bag, sleeping pad, add a little waterproof baby sack I took for most of it. Um, so that's what you'd see on the back of my bike. Um, and then I'd have like arm warmers, leg warmers, a vest, a rain jacket, rain pants, three pairs of socks. Um, and all that would get stuffed into the little front pockets and then just tie it around the back. That's pretty much it. Some tubes and pump and some tools and... Just not a lot of stuff. You just wash stuff in the hotel? Um, washing stuff's always kind of a challenge. Yeah, some yeah the the shorts and shirt you wash in the hotel, and then sometimes. sometimes yeah. <laughs> Other than that, yeah, yeah, the washing's kind of a tough question. Say, <laughs> so, so what? No, the rain is more. The rain, yeah, exactly. <laughs> What'd you say? Yeah. Hotels. Uh, it was about like one third of the night was in hotels. Um, I'd ask this guy when he went around. He was like, "How many, how many times did you stay in a hotel?" He's like, "Every other night, hotel." It's 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 not like real hardcore bike packing where you're sleeping in the ditch every single night. Um, if you do this, you need to strip down. You need to wash your kit. You need to wash yourself. You need to prevent. It's body preventative maintenance is a real important thing on a journey this long. Like you cannot let anything go. Okay. Was there a specific reason why you chose to snitch through the state instead of doing like Because I had to do the bonus 2,000 miles. Yeah, is there a reason why you go like South America or something? Like, do you want to just log those miles? Yeah, I mean, it's nobody's nobody's done South America really doing the around the world thing. So I was just kind of following the footsteps of those who came before me and playing it safe in the States. I was I thought about going down to Mexico, and then I heard how long the border crossings take, and I was just like, you know, I'm not trying to complicate this situation. So it was in some ways a simple trip around the world. It wasn't the most extravagant and varied, but whatever. It was what it was. Any was component efficiency a big part of your pre-planning, or did you just sort of go out with what had worked before? Um, the route planning was a little bit of different things. Like, I'd already ridden across Europe once before, so I kind of knew how the mountains would worked out there. India was just the one road across. Australia, um, the reason I went there was because somebody already made the route for me with the race. Um, New Zealand, I had planned a route, but I ended up just improvising everything. Um, and then the U.S., the first two grand of it were planned, but then the rest of it was just willy-nilly trying to get in bonus miles. I was just wondering if, you, if there are any uh, injuries or illnesses along the way. Uh, the cracked wrist, I got sick in Australia because I have a grass allergy and I rode too hard the first day and depleted my body's immune system. 
Um, and that, that was it. I didn't really have any physical issues. Yeah, I went tubeless basically the whole way until I lost my tubeless setup, and then uh, I think it was like eight, ten flats total. So which was better? What would you say if somebody's running around the world with a coffee cup? Fast? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Okay. Two? <laughs> Tires is a personal question. I won't answer that. What pressure would you Uh, Somewhere between four bar and eight bar. <laughs> What country had your favorite soda? Uh, favorite soda, Australia. What was it? Oh, I don't remember what it was called. It was what flavor was it? Called? It was like a lemon lime thing. It was nothing fancy. Right? Uh, it was some sort of really sour lemon lime, but it was like a punch in the face every time you drank it. It's like what I needed to stay awake. Andrew? What was your budget like? Uh, it was about 20 grand. Um, I did about 14 grand in fundraising and then. <laughs> potatoes. Potatoes and ketchup. <laughs> it's it basically, you can kind of, David said it before, it's like a dollar a mile, you know? Like, that's a good good budget. Or not a dollar a mile, right? A dollar a. Yeah, a dollar a mile. That's about, about what it works out to, like. $50 a day on food, $50 for a hotel, and then before you spend it on, who knows, it always, it just, there's so much junk to buy when you're doing this crap. What was the most expensive area in Oh, the most expensive area was Monaco. So I did, I did not go to Monaco. I stayed out of it, but I was around Monaco. It was just stupid. Like, uh, a double shot of espresso was like seven dollars or something. You know. Two espressos. Yeah. Two espressos. <laughs> and cheapest. Uh, the cheapest was um, India is very cheap. Yeah, India. Some days in India, I could get by for like food and a hotel for fifteen bucks. That was super rad. But. So where should if somebody was going to go to a different country to go ride bikes? Where do you think they should go? Uh, France, Spain. Yeah, it's laid back there. It's, it's civilized. Did you get harassed or pulled over by like, authorities or cops or like, have to deal with any of that? Uh, I just had a couple pull, pull me over um, on that stretch of a confusingly labeled road. Um, other than that, I, might, I played... I played it really straight, not riding on any sort of illicit roadways. There was one illicit roadway I rode in, just just because it was faster, but nobody pulled me over, and it was the dead of night. And, um, yeah, no, not much, not much wrath, unfortunately. Who had the best bus stops? Who had the best bus stops? <laughs> um, uh, just. All of Western Europe, really. Yeah, Western Europe transitioning into Croatia, they're always, it's like a big old building, you know. You can just set up shop. Like, if they had them here in Portland, like, they would be stores for people to just sell stuff. <laughs> you know, bike chop shops and stuff. Would you do a similar uh, bike bike setup? Steel, correct? Yeah, yeah, I would, yeah, I, I like the steel bike. I, 
I worry about carbon bikes and like screwing up and like leaning them on a heater or something. I don't know if that's a realistic fear, but could be. Yeah. Do you have another question? So who had the best picnic tables? Who had the best picnic tables? Australia. Okay. Yeah, Australia. Where are you going to? Where am I going to? I do not have a real answer on that yet. I'm still just recovering and. This is me getting my head back together after all of this. I did this to just kind of admit that it was done and over with and come up with, I'm like, I need to get this all out and review to everybody just so I feel like I've moved on. When did you last day on the trip? Oh, say what? When did you finish? June 30th. Yeah, just a couple months, three or four months ago. What was your method for keeping your equipment charged? Uh, so I've got a dynamo on there, and then it's got a little USB adapter that goes to it, and then I brought a big old cash battery. I actually went through like two or three of these things on the trip, um, and then make sure I had multiple chargers so I could just hit outlets wherever. Um, that's one kind of cool thing, like t bike touring in the States, there's always water spigots, there's always power outlets, there's always churches. You can go to a church in the States and get everything you need for like a, a place to stay for the night. In Europe, they do not have water spigots on the churches. They do not have power outlets on the churches. They do not have wood benches on the churches. They're all made of stone. Like, Europe's kind of rough for a bike tourist, but still France and Spain are really nice. Like, fountains everywhere where the water just pours out. Y'all had enough? All right. <laughs> number one best thing ever. Number one best thing ever. <laughs> it's pretty much finishing, yeah. Finishing was being was <laughs> Very last week. All right. Thanks for listening. There will be more Sprocket Podcasts coming soon. Again, thank you to Bike Gallery Selwood for hosting this event. Recommend you head down there and check them out sometime. Say hi to Nathan. He's there occasionally. Visit us on the internet at thesprocketpodcast.com. Send us your emails, thesprocketpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, Instagram, at Sprocket Podcast. Thanks to all of our generous donors who have made this thing happen. We really greatly appreciate you, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, take care. Have a good one.